This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Hey, hey, I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show where we talk about what's going on in our culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. Today, we're bringing you a special episode from our friends over at NPR's Embedded Podcast. It's part of a series called All the Only Ones, which looks at the history of trans youth and what young trans people are facing today. In the series, host Lane Kaplan-Levinson goes 100 years back in time. But this particular episode focuses on the 1960s and how what was happening then has echoes today. Now, a quick note before we get into it. Historical figures in this story are represented by actors, and they'll be reading people's real words, either from letters or medical records. And while we don't know the names of the patients, because their names were redacted from those medical records... Lane will be using their pseudonyms, which were assigned by the historian who uncovered their stories. And a quick warning, this episode includes profanity and mentions of suicidal ideation. Listen with care. All right, here's Lane. What are you looking forward to about your future? Getting out of this god-awful place. (laughs) This is Parker Parker. When I met him, he was a senior in high school living in Ohio. Lots of high school kids like Parker can't wait to get out of their hometown. But Parker wants to leave the Ohio suburbs, not because he has some romantic idea about all he could do and be in some big city across the country. He wants to leave his home because it doesn't feel safe for him to be himself. It's like corn and conservatives. I need a t-shirt that says that. Getting out of that is what I look forward to the most. He wants to transition, take testosterone, get top surgery. And to do all that, he would need support from his family, including financial support. And he might need to sacrifice something he loves, playing field hockey. The Ohio State House of Representatives gave the green light to Bill 151 last week, an education bill with new bans to athletics. Republicans across the country are pushing to ban transgender students from competing in school sports. These measures would block transgender students from competing on sports teams that align with their gender identity. I just, like, don't want to have to separate myself. Like, I feel like I've had to, with just, like, being an athlete. But then, like, kind of being trans on the side. Like, I kind of just want to exist as a whole person. This is All the Only Ones, a three-part series about American trans youth over the last century. Generations of trans kids have gotten to know themselves thinking they're the only ones, even though history shows they're not. Each episode follows young people from a defining moment in the last century of trans history in the U.S. and young people today to connect trans youth across time, see what has and hasn't changed, and what comes next. I'm your host, Lane Kaplan-Levinson.
Young trans people in the U.S. have pretty much always faced obstacles to getting gender-affirming care. In this second episode, we meet teenagers in the 1960s who struggled to get access to the first gender clinics in the U.S. I can't wait six years. If I have to wait that long, I'll go crazy. And we hear echoes of that struggle today, when, again, there's a difference between what treatments young trans people can technically get and being able to actually get them. They're often forced to decide what sacrifices they're willing to make to transition. I just, like, was thinking, I was just like, but what if they don't recruit me because I'm trans? Before we get back to the show, we know you value thinking deep about culture with us. And your financial support is what makes our work possible. Because the thing is, even though our journalism is freely available, it's not free to produce. So a big shout out to our It's Been a Minute Plus supporters and anyone listening who currently donates to public media. Thank you. You are making a real difference. If you're listening and haven't yet made the leap to supporter, today is Giving Tuesday, an international day of giving. It's the perfect reason to finally join It's Been a Minute Plus to listen to our show sponsor-free. Or you can make a tax-deductible donation to your local NPR station or the NPR network or all of the above. You have choices. What really matters is that you are a part of the community of listeners who make this work possible. We cannot do it without you. And your support makes sure everyone can listen. You can give today at donate.npr.org slash minute or explore NPR plus at plus.npr.org. And again, thank you. Parker's a passionate guy. I love 80s rom-coms. I just got a new sticker from my computer from 10 Things I Hate About You. It's my one of my favorite movies. Okay, not an 80s movie, but give him a break. He was born in 2007. I also love Dirty Dancing. There we go. I also love music and making playlists on Spotify. It's <laughs> like, I made a playlist recently and it's literally called Gay and Sad. Like, I put so much effort into that. Yes, I do have a Harry Styles song on there. Black and white film camera, yellow sunglasses. Maybe his biggest love of all is field hockey. Great idea. Find the open pass. Don't force it, so. We're at Parker's practice. Good. Eyes up. He and his teammates are running drills in a big indoor sports complex. It's super hectic, but for Parker, this is where he feels most at peace. Good, Parker. Still white ball. Still white ball. Just imagine a blank piece of paper that's black, and there's just nothing. That's what it feels like. Kind of go quiet, if that makes sense. Kind of just a blob that exists. And what feels so good about that feeling of, like, going black, of, like, nothing? Because I never feel like that. (laughs) I feel like I'm so stressed out 24-7. FHL on three! One, two, three! FHL! But there was one problem. To play field hockey, he had to play on a girls' team 
because there was no boys team for him to play on. I wasn't comfortable at all. I didn't know how to act. With field hockey, you're constantly like reversing your penny, changing the color for like teams and stuff. And I kid you not, like I would look at my feet and I would just do it as fast as I could because I'm like, I hate my body. I wanted to be a guy. Like, I, I just knew. Despite that, he still got really into it. So into it, he joined two teams in order to play year-round, his high school's team in the fall and a club team the rest of the year. When he came out as trans his sophomore year, his club team was there for him. Like, I got a text from one of my coaches, and it was just like, hey, like, do you want uniform modifications? And I was just like, oh my god, yes. But on the other team, his high school team... I still have to wear a skirt that rides up my ass a lot. (laughs) With the spandex. (laughs) Have you asked to wear a men's jersey? Honestly, I'm too scared to ask my coach that for high school. How come? I'm... It's just a lot of stuff of, like... There's a lot of repercussions if you do something wrong. Like, next thing I know, I'm not starting. And I've started all four years. So... I didn't want to do something wrong and question anything. And so I just kept my head down. Sophomore year was really hard. My mental health just, it, it went downhill. It was really bad. Dealing a lot with suicide. I did not want to be here at all. So got admitted to the psych ward absolutely horrible experience. Parker stayed in the psych ward for a week. Because, I mean, the psych ward really didn't help with anything about me being trans. Like, they didn't understand it. They told me that my dysphoria could be coped with, and I'm like, I can't really cope with it. Like, I need gender-affirming care. Field hockey was the only thing that helped Parker cope. And his field hockey season was about to start. So to try to get released as quickly as possible, he hid his trans identity and pretended to accept the advice of the clinicians. That happened two years ago. He still hasn't gotten gender-affirming treatment. I mean, I would love top surgery and to take tea someday. It sucks that I can't get it. His parents are separated, and he mostly lives with his mom, who says they just can't afford it. She doesn't have enough money to help food, sports, and bills. Like, that's how money is divided up. On top of the money stuff, Parker says his gender identity hasn't been easy for his mom to understand or get behind. She really is trying, and I think that's all you can ask of someone. Love you, Mom, if you're listening. Sometimes Parker can feel like an individual psychiatrist or family member is standing in his way. But there are bigger forces that are keeping him from, in his words, existing as a whole person. Like his state government. I just got off the Ohio Youth Coalition meeting for queer students and queer advocates. And 
I don't know how I can even, like, say this without feeling, like, hot-headed and wanting to throw my computer out the window because of how upset I am. After we'd been talking for a few weeks, Parker sent me this voice memo about a new resolution proposed by the Ohio Board of Education, a resolution encouraging the Ohio General Assembly to pass laws that would restrict the rights of trans students. I'm just sitting here and literally thinking, like, what the fuck? Parker feels such a sense of responsibility to be an activist because the Ohio laws are targeted at young people like him. For instance, there's House Bill 54, which is officially called the SAFE Act. Save adolescents from experimentation. That's the acronym. (laughs) Which would stop doctors from providing specific types of gender-affirming care to trans youth, like surgery and hormone blockers. And then House Bill 616 is a doozy. You cannot teach anything that is deemed a divisive concept. Think, quote-unquote, critical race theory, sexual orientation, gender identity. They can just call it that it's a divisive concept, and it can't be taught. These House bills haven't gotten passed, but they're still being debated in the state legislature. So when Parker isn't practicing field hockey, he's fighting these proposed laws. I don't have a life anymore. (laughs) Like... That's what it feels like. It feels like every ounce of happiness has been taken away from me, and I have to focus every ounce of energy I have to this and just to fight for the right to, like, exist. Like, I just can't be a kid. Right, like, if it was up to you, you would spend more of your time, like, making Spotify playlists. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It would just be called gay instead of gay and sad, you know? (laughs) At this point in the U.S., major medical associations support young people getting access to gender-affirming care, like puberty blockers and hormone treatments. But there's a difference between knowing what you want and being able to get it. That's true now, and it was true in the past. We'll return to Parker's story. But first, we'll meet an earlier generation of trans kids trying to navigate a medical system that seemed able to help, but didn't. And what these young people did about it. They're reverse engineering their own way to transition. And they're figuring out whatever it takes, no matter how little their family or their family doctor or their school guidance counselor, however little all of those people understand, they get it. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill, FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Christine Jorgensen, who used to answer to George, creates quite a stir as she returns home to New York from Copenhagen. Christine hit the headlines following the series of operations in Denmark that transformed her from a boy into a girl. Christine Jorgensen is probably the best-known trans figure of the mid-20th century. Christine Jorgensen is this, you know, tall, blonde, thin, just a classic 1950s beauty. Very impressed by everyone coming. Who had been a GI during the war, traveled to Denmark in order to get access to gender-affirming surgery, and who comes back to New York City and lands on the tarmac at the airport to an absolute media circus. I don't have any plans at the moment, and I thank you all for coming, but I think it's too much. Fine, thank you very much. As we explored in the first episode, surgical transition first became possible in the 20s and 30s, between the two world wars. Jorgensen benefited from new techniques that came out of World War II. Because during the war, scientific researchers start to develop ways to make hormone molecules in a lab. In the wake of more injuries to soldiers, doctors become incredibly skilled at reconstructive plastic surgeries. This is Jules Gill-Peterson, associate professor of history at Johns Hopkins University and our main historical guide throughout this series. Jules told me that Jorgensen's fame had made headlines in part because of who she was, a former soldier, a patriot, and now a beautiful woman, a beautiful white woman. She was largely accepted, even celebrated by the public, when she came home from Denmark after her surgery. Part of the deal is like, sure, she did something kind of weird, but she came out on the other end very normal. Normal to white mainstream America at the time. And she quickly became the global face of 1950s transness, making it clear to the world that transitioning was possible for some. But that really means that almost all trans people are kind of like going to have a hard time living up to that standard. It was a standard largely defined by race and class, a standard that was reinforced by the first gender clinics in the United States. These clinics started opening in the 1960s, run by surgeons, endocrinologists, urologists. The place where people who wished to transition could go and be evaluated and get access to that. The first was at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. Its gender identity clinic opened in 1966 to perform what we now call gender-affirming surgeries. The idea is we will grant trans people their request for hormones and surgery, not because they have a disease or a physiological abnormality, but because it will improve their self-esteem. It will make them less likely to commit suicide. And so maybe if they can't quite have kids, they can at least pull off most of what a normal American life is. 
But that didn't mean everyone who needed care was able to just waltz in and see a doctor. There were lots of barriers to access. One being to get an appointment. You have to be 21. Back then, you were a minor if you were under 21, as opposed to 18. So if you don't have your parents' permission... What are you going to do? How can you get around that? That really becomes the big sticking point for young people, is as much as is possible for all these trans adults who have jobs and communities and have credibility, they don't have that. But these young people have knowledge. They've done their research, they know about these clinics, and they know what they want. So they start contacting the clinics. And one doctor in particular. A very congenial old German man named Harry Benjamin. Harry Benjamin was an endocrinologist who ran a private practice on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. In 1966, he published The Transsexual Phenomenon, the first book devoted entirely to this new model of trans medicine. Young people devoured his writing and wrote back. For approximately five years, the wish to become a female has been and still is with me. I've felt for a long time like a girl trapped in a boy's body trying to get out. I understand that growth can be stopped by hormones. In that case, my treatment and growth can be controlled simultaneously. This can only be done if I start now. Letters poured in, but Benjamin always wrote back with the same response. You are very young yet and must give yourself a chance to mature. In two or three years, life may look differently to you. We can't see you. You're not an adult. Wait. Wait until you're 21. If you feel very bad, you should take your parents into your confidence. They are probably your best friends. Perhaps I am young. I've felt this way all my life. And I've tried other ways of living my life. This isn't something I have thought of overnight. I don't want to wait until I'm growing old. I want to be a girl now so I can grow up the rest of the way as a normal girl. I just want everyone to imagine what it would be like in 1968 or 1972 to be 16 years old, realizing you're trans, finding the medical literature, reading it, understanding it, and deciding to pick up a pen and write to New York City and to argue with a doctor whose name you see in the newspaper, it's incredible. But it also shows us so many decades ago how clearly many trans youth understood themselves. There's no ambiguity. They're not confused. And then there was this teenager. I'm a 14-year-old boy who wants nothing more out of life than to be a girl. I call her Vicky. She was 14 years old in 1968, was living in pretty rural Ohio. And she says that she recently came out to her father. Jules calls her Vicky because we don't know her real name. The medical records redacted it. Vicky finds out about Harry Benjamin, too, and writes a letter to his office asking for help. You're hearing excerpts of Vicky's letter read by an actor. I've written to a doctor in Columbus about this, and he gave me an appointment. But my father wouldn't permit me to go. When that first letter came back with a reply, the same standard reply, you're too young, can't help you, yeah, didn't matter to her. She decided she was going to argue <laughs> with Harry Benjamin for years. And she decided she would just write about her life over and over again. This may sound funny, but I'm really desperate. I'm in the ninth grade, 
And I'm scared to go to school because the kids are cruel. They're always hitting me and yelling at me. My arms are black and blue, and I can't help but not do anything. I get very nervous and don't know what to do. I just can't hit them back. I have one close friend at this school. At least I thought I did. I could tell her almost anything, so today I wrote her a letter. She says that she came out to her best friend, but then that girl passed the letter around the whole class. And by the end of the period, around 11 people had finished reading it. I was never so embarrassed in my entire life. In her first letter to Harry Benjamin, there's a photograph. You see her standing outside what looks sort of like a double-wide trailer or sort of, you know, relatively modest model, mid-century home. It's a black-and-white photo, and, you know, she's standing out on the street in the foreground, staring right at the camera lens. And there's just a deep well of sadness etched into her face. She looks young, she looks 14, but she also looks impossibly wise behind her years, like she's really been through something. I think about running away, but I can't. I've tried killing myself, but nothing happens. At the very worst, I just get sick. I don't know what to do. Every night, I cry myself to sleep. I can't wait six years. If I have to wait that long, I'll go crazy. She keeps sending letters. Can you write to my father? Can you write to my gym teacher? Can you get me a prescription for estrogen? Is it possible for you to get some kind of permit to let me wear women's clothes? To all these questions, she gets the same reply back. No. Vicky kept being told no and kept on writing. Maybe in part because she kept getting responses back. Sometimes from Benjamin's secretary, sometimes from the man himself. She wasn't getting what she wanted, but Benjamin was giving her something. A degree of validation by an authority. He believed she was trans, whether he was going to help her transition or not. Because she was seen as bearing a certain kind of humanity, it elicited a kind of sympathy from doctors that made it possible for Vicky to be recognized as trans, in part because she was white. Remember, during this period, it was the image of Christine Jorgensen that loomed over what made trans identity acceptable. So when these clinics popped up around the country, age wasn't the only barrier to entry. Racism was baked into this new gender field from the start, determining who was and wasn't going to be literally seen. And it was well known, of course, as early as the 1960s, that, for example, Black trans women shouldn't even bother going to Harry Benjamin. You'll be turned away in the office waiting room. He doesn't see Black girls, was sort of the word on the street. And if you were Black and young, you really had the deck stacked against you. The biggest archival find of any of the young people that I encountered in the course of my research was a Black trans girl from New Jersey who was coming of age as an adolescent in the mid-1960s. Jules calls her Donna, because, like with Vicky, we can't know her real name. Donna grew up in Trenton, New Jersey. 
Her mom had a disability and couldn't work. Donna lived with her until she was 13. Then she was taken from her mom and put in foster care. But she knew already by that age that she was a girl. She had already told her mother that. And unfortunately, in the foster care system, just that level of gender transgression, telling everyone she was a girl, dressing as a girl, wanting to go by a girl's name and pronouns, was enough to have her committed to a state institution. The fact that she declared herself to be a girl was taken as evidence that she was, according to the psychiatric standards of the time, mentally ill, dangerous, and unable to be in charge of her own life. The actual language they use is incredibly dehumanizing and horrific. Some of the sort of worst kinds of insults and epithets masquerading as diagnoses that you could imagine. But basically, the psychiatrist felt that she was delusional because she explained very calmly and confidently that she was a girl and would like to live as one. When I read about Donna in Jules's book, I thought I was going to be able to feature another person at length in her own voice. But as you might have noticed by now, in stark contrast to Vicky, you haven't heard anything in Donna's own voice. And you're not going to. Jules couldn't find any letters or records of Donna's own words. Nothing where she was allowed to speak for herself. Because of that, we can only know the version of Donna's life portrayed by doctors in their psychiatric records. Because she was in the foster care system and the state was essentially acting as her legal guardian, every single year, a psychiatrist had to come in, reevaluate her, and sign off on her continued incarceration. Donna's records ended up with, of all people, Harry Benjamin, probably because her doctors from New Jersey wanted to consult with him. This is the same Dr. Benjamin who exchanged letters with Vicky. We don't know if Dr. Benjamin wrote back to Donna's doctors. All the records tell us for sure is that he didn't actively try to get Donna released. She spent the remainder of her entire childhood and into adulthood locked up by the state of New Jersey. Meanwhile, in the summer of 1969, Vicky took matters into her own hands. She just upped and moved to Columbus on her own. Out of her dad's house, into the city. And she started going out in public in Columbus, Ohio, as a girl. People have never questioned me. I've been in ladies' restrooms, been whistled at, even been helped with my coat. She started going to ladies' restrooms, but she stopped going to school. And eventually that caught up with her, and she was actually arrested for truancy. Instead of being sent to jail, she was sent to a kind of psychiatric home for children. But Vicky was only held in the psych ward for two months. I was discharged February 6th, and I begin cosmetology school February 16th. It's 1970. She's 16 years old now. And she has, despite all the pain and suffering she's narrated and all the roadblocks in her life, this last letter has a kind of optimism about her future. Vicky tells Dr. Benjamin she's out of the psych ward, she's starting cosmetology school, and she's finally starting her transition. She found a doctor willing to prescribe her hormones. For the first time in my life, I feel happy. I no longer feel helpless. And from there, she stops writing. And I choose to believe that she stopped writing because 
things got really good. And the moment she's finally allowed to transition, her life changes so dramatically that she disappears. Vicky was only 16 when she sent her final hopeful letters to Dr. Benjamin. But Donna, who was institutionalized, was held in a facility until she was 30 years old. She became an adult and she was still being held against her will. Donna spent 15 years of her life in that psychiatric home. She finally got out in the 70s when a new psychiatrist took over Dr. Benjamin's office, a trans psychiatrist named Dr. Jean Hoff. She reviewed all of Dr. Benjamin's files and discovered Donna's medical records and demanded she be released. I think it really, unfortunately, just goes to show how starkly different those childhoods could be by the end of the 1960s. To be Black and trans was already to be considered so far outside of the circle of American sympathy or dignity or humanity that you could be locked up for it. And so although Donna's case is really extreme, the sad truth is that her case, her experience, might have been a lot more representative than Vicky's. Jewel says that both of their trajectories tell a different story than the popular narrative today, that we're in some unprecedented moment when kids suddenly want gender-affirming care. The deck has been stacked so severely against trans youth that they have been experiencing systemic discrimination, exclusion, marginalization, and suffering now for nearly a century. That's the story. And the real story is not that these are new issues, is that they're very old issues. There really is a story about trans youth that we should be sharing, that we should be talking about, but it's all in the exact opposite vein of the disinformation that we're being fed today. When we come back, we return to Parker, who's trying to imagine a different kind of future as he enters adulthood, one where he doesn't have to compartmentalize who he is. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. You don't just live in your home. You live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, local amenities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle. Find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from The Run-Through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. Our next speaker is Parker Parker. Thank you. My name is Parker. I'm a high school student at Olentangy High School, and I'm a whole person. Everything I am comes in a package. I'm an athlete, I'm a student, I'm a child. Last year, Parker testified at the Ohio Board of Education meeting against an anti-trans resolution that had been introduced. I am human. If you cut me, I will bleed like everyone in this room. I bleed red, like you. I cry when I'm hurt, like you. I laugh like you. I experience heartbreak, like you. I experience the joys life can bring, like you. And I'm human, like you. Adding transgender in front of that seems to, for many people, skin me of all my humanity. If you ban me from playing the sport I love, I will lose a piece of myself. Field hockey is my life. So I ask for the state board to veto this resolution so my identity and humanity can be respected. Thank you for your time. The resolution got approved. It's basically a public announcement that the school board does not support proposed federal protections for transgender students. Even though the resolution doesn't force schools to do anything, local school boards could use it as cover to pass policies that target trans kids. Parker's success as a field hockey player is his best ticket out of Ohio to a more trans-friendly place. But the sports also made it harder for him to be trans. When Parker came out as trans, he couldn't just switch to the men's field hockey team at his high school. Because at the high school and college level, there are no men's field hockey teams. It's a women's-only sport. If he wanted to keep playing in college, it would have to be on a women's team. So when Parker was trying to get recruited, he was worried about being out. I essentially had to dead name myself with coaches, and, like, I didn't tell any of the coaches I was talking to that I was trans. I just, like, was thinking, I was just like, but what if they don't recruit me because I'm trans? You know? Because I'm not normal. I'm, like, not the normal standard field hockey player. So you basically went back in the closet, right, just to go through this process? Mm -hmm. It was awful. Like, I felt the tension of, like, why are you hiding? Like, I kept asking myself that, like, why are you doing this? Like, I can feel, like, just kind of, like, the god-awful feelings, like, that this is bringing me. But it's like, why can't you just be honest? And, I mean, it just meant so much to me that, like, you know, I had a place to play in college that I just ignored that and pushed it down. Because I just, I guess, I just wanted a place to play. He got recruited to play for Merrimack College right outside Boston. Once he committed, he came out to his new coach, who was super supportive. From what I'm aware of, like, I'm the first trans guy to play Division One field hockey. I'm the first. And I think it's going to pave pathways for other kids 
because I really don't have anyone to look up to. Like, I don't have a trans guy killing it in college and, like, being the best Division One field hockey player he can be. If I can give that to some other kid who's going through it right now, that it's worth it. It's totally worth all that pain to just make it easier for someone else. Parker's coach may be supportive, but she doesn't control the rules that govern the sport at the college level. The NCAA has specific rules that, like, I can't take tea and play on a women's team. If he did, he'd go over the limit of testosterone that's allowed for trans men playing women's field hockey. I could transition in college, right? But I wouldn't be able to play. So what am I supposed to do? If Parker played a different sport that had a men's team, like, say, if he were a swimmer, he very well could go to college, swim on the men's team, and take tea. That's because trans-feminine athletes are the primary target of the current moral panic, as people are more concerned that they have some sort of unfair advantage. Parker knows this. People aren't accepting of trans athletes, especially trans athletes that are women. Even though trans men aren't the main targets, he's still swept up in these sports policies. Looking into my future and what college is going to look like for me and how I know there is going to be a lot of struggle with being a trans athlete and not being able to transition and, like, having to continue to live in this body that, like, I hate so much. I just don't know how to do it. Parker could wait years to transition into the body he wants so that he can keep playing the sport he loves. Or he could transition into the body he wants but lose the sport he loves. Either way, he has to give up a core part of himself. But there is one person in Parker's life who he can be his whole self with. Someone who's always seen him as a whole person. His grandma. My grandma always knew that I was a guy. Like, she tells me that to this day. Me and my grandma are besties, so. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's a microphone. I told you, Grandma, oh. that they were coming. <laughs> no, you didn't. Yeah, Grandma, I told you. You, no, I grandma, told you. I will. So I have to be nice or can I be a bitch? You can be a bitch. <laughs> Parker and his grandma hang out a lot, just the two of them, over at her place. I forgot. You brought me a million dollars. No, I brought you ten dollars. Keep the money. Shut up and keep the money. So what else is going on? Hmm, not much. You know, living life. Living life. Oh, I went to the state house. You know, I heard your mom saying something about your dad and her were talking about something about you testifying and all this. And well, I know. And I feel like this is like it's more of an educational experience than being mm -hmm. in school. Mm-hmm. I'm performing my civic duties as a citizen of the United States. Oh, I know. There's so many <clears throat> issues out there right now. They don't care about the kids. Nobody cares about the kids. Late last fall, Parker turned 18. To celebrate, he got a tattoo. It says healing, because I heard the song um, Healing by Fletcher. There was like a line, it was like, Breaking down doesn't mean you're broken. Mm -hmm. 
Cause like I break down probably crying at least like once a day. And like, I have so many mental breakdowns, but like, it's like kind of just like that reminder of like, you're not broken, like this is okay. And like to keep going. Hi Lane, um, I'm here with my grandma right now on the way home from getting dinner. Uh, we're gonna talk about the tattoo. The tattoo was a gift from his grandma. First off, uh, how, what do you think of my tattoo? I love it. I'm proud of you for getting it. So why did you like decide to go with me to get it done? Because it was my birthday present to my grandson. And I was going to go because I'm paying for it. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad I invited you. It was really fun. And I look forward to um, our matching ones. Yes, Lane, I've convinced her we're getting matching tattoos. <laughs> um, so the final question is, what's it like having, like, a trans grandson? And, like, how has, like, the process been for you? There was no process because I knew all along. And you're no different than the day you were born. You're still my grandchild. Whether you be a granddaughter or grandson, which you are my grandson, and I love you, and I'll always love you that way. Well, thank you. I love you for being my grandma. Aww. Yeah, not crashing the car on the way home. <laughs> no. <laughs> um. on the next and final episode of All the Only Ones. What if we simply say yes to each and everything that trans youth needed? We'll sit in this current moment, one of increased visibility, scrutiny, and potential, and we'll finally start to look towards the future. I can only imagine the kind of world we will be gifted by these young people who felt for as long as they could remember they could do anything because how amazing would such a world be? That's on the last episode of All the Only Ones from NPR. If you want to hear our last episode of All the Only Ones now, sign up for Embedded Plus at plus.npr.org slash embedded. Embedded is NPR's home for ambitious storytelling, and your support helps us make more shows like this one. That's plus.npr.org slash embedded. Go there to find out more, and thank you to everyone who's already signed up. All the Only Ones is written and hosted by me, Lane Kaplan-Levinson. Our producers are Max Friedman, Skylar Swenson, Abby Wendell, and me. Editing by Raina Cohen, Brenna Farrell, Bilal Qureshi, Katie Simon, Liana Simstrom, and sensitivity editing by Cassius Adair. Our engineers are Josh Newell and Gilly Moon. Our senior supervising producer is Cher Vincent. Our intern is Jose Sandoval. Special thanks to Nina Patuk, Sam J. Leeds, and Lauren Gonzalez. Also, thanks to Eli Conley, Austin Sibley, Aaron Reed, Cam Ogden, Hansi Stokes, Jovan Kallenberg, Burns, Eve Abrams, Lou Olkowski, Maria Paz Gutierrez, and the folks at the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. And a huge thanks to Jules Gill-Peterson for being our historical guide and lending her scholarship to this entire series. 
Our voiceover actors for this episode are Izzy Daniel as Vicky, Andy Huther, Lennon Sherburn, Sarah Mosquera, Devin Speak, and Anil Oza. The NPR execs are Yolanda Sangweni, Irene Noguchi, and Anya Grunman. Our fact checkers are Kevin Vocal and Will Chase. Our theme music is by Kyle Kidd and Sound on Tape. Additional music in this episode is by Shane Ivers. And if you want to listen to Parker's gay and sad playlist, you can find a link in the episode webpage, which is at npr.org slash embedded. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or are in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson, and this is All the Only Ones, from NPR. To hear the other episodes from the All the Only One series, and I hope you do, check out the Embedded Podcast. Additional production support came from Corey Antonio Rose and Jessica Placek. I'm Brittany Luce. We'll be back this Friday with a new episode of It's Been a Minute. This message comes from NPR sponsor Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.